Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again as we chat with Scott Mangus, a former U.S. Marine who is now a practicing Zen monk in Japan, in a wide-ranging conversation including the nature of free will, becoming a spiritual tourist, attachment versus love, the tussle over ego, neuroplasticity, holosync, and the ever-present notion that someone has to be last. It's going to get trippy. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle figure of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches... And prepare to open your mind for the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 108 of the Drunken Dows podcast. Another great interview today. A, f- a fun, interesting interview with a brand new point of view from our friend Scott Mangus, who happens to be a Zen monk who spent the first 20 years of his life as a U.S. Marine. That's quite uh, not exactly your typical journey, so we shall explore that. Exactly. But first, we'll, we'll say hello to our fantastic friends that make all this possible. Oh, yes. Mr. Chris O'Dell from Datsusara with the coolest hemp gear on earth. Yep. I still have to get one email from anybody who has bought their stuff saying their stuff sucks. Everybody's loved it. Anytime I've had anybody who say, look, I loved it, but I had a minor problem with Chris fixed it in three seconds yep. with the best customer service of anyone. So check him out if you need backpacks, travel bags, computer bags, anything like that. Make that be your first choice. And then if that doesn't work for you, go for something else. But check him out first. He had an awesome post on the Facebook the other day that um, his pal that he rolls jujitsu with directed the movie... Captain Fantastic that Viggo Mortensen was in. Check. That was my favorite movie of the summer. So. I have not seen it, and he told me to check it out. Yeah, so yeah. I it's shall. Good, especially anybody who's a parent should check it out. War checking. Make cool. you uh, think about what you've done as your parenting skills. It's really Maybe we can bring him as a guest for a future Drunken Taoist episode. I would hope so. He would be fascinating. He's Let's a longtime that. actor, but just pulled this movie out. He's done three or four others, but this one... Awesome. Like I said, something original this year. No explosions or car chases. It still managed to be entertaining. I dig it. Let's make it happen. So, Plus with Vigo, who's a god. So Vigo's that's always great. great. So that's Dr. Sarah, and we move on to... Our pal set on it. Thank you, Mr. Aubrey Marcus, for hooking us up. O-N-N-I-T.com. There's, as usual, there are the codes for discounts on all these products are in the episode notes for both on it, that's Usara, short design t-shirts. Uh, check out on it. I've been recently trying some of their new products right here. It's sitting in my hands. Some of the salt that we use, that's basically all I ever use for salt because a lot of the commercial salt sucks. They have nasty things that really shouldn't be in there in there. So the ones they sell tend to be a lot better. So you go from food to supplements. I just finished giving Isabella some vitamin D spray because, you know, especially with kids, you don't give kids 
peels or random crap like that a spray is so much easier to go down and since we're all chronically short of vitamin d that's never a bad thing it probably absorbs better too yeah so all the good stuff check them out at o-n-n-i-t and of course our pals are sure design t-shirts are made to be worn by people living epic lives or to be told and retold by future generations check them out we miss bennett badly but still i'm glad sure design survives that was his vision that those are his people so i'm glad it's out there i may wear my harem pants next week just to honor him they are badass indeed so we've moved up our kind donation name botchering up to the front of the show so everybody can get a listen to it to make sure that perhaps y'all didn't know this happened turn it off after the end of the interview before the exciting closing announcements happen let the botchering begin all right, Richimon Butchering, here we go. The kind folks who are decent enough to help us keep this awesome thing rolling with their kind donations. Starting with Lisa Robles, Gary McClure, Chris Trayball, Robert Primus, Aaron Berkman, Mark Mendiola, Matt Trabert, Chris Talent, and Thomas McNamara. What a fine bunch of individuals. Thanks so much, everybody, for helping out, and y'all are welcome to drop us a couple bucks, and we'll add your name to this awesome list and uh, raise your names up to be honored as well. All right, moving on. Having said that, let's jump into the episode. Here we go. out of japan by now <laughs> you originally where are you from that's uh i was born in salt lake city and uh don't remember much i was pretty young then <laughs> <laughs> and then we uh we lived in uh, <clears throat> excuse me we lived in uh, pleasanton california until i was <laughs> about 12 years old 13 then we moved back to uh, detroit yeah, I've been in Pleasanton. Yeah. The name lies. <laughs> well, it's, it was a much different place back then. You know, was, there was it? There were still places that hadn't been built. Uh, right. My parents bought that house for about $25,000. Yeah, and in wow. 1983, I think it was 280000 Right. And my younger sister, a year or two ago, was out there. And on Zillow, it was 450000 yeah, thousand dollars. And uh, Of course. It's just uh, fascinating. Yeah. Random craziness of it all. But that was, you know, that was when kids could be kids. You know, that wake up and leave and come home when you're hungry and nobody cared. And uh, or there wasn't this element that you know I got to wear a I got to wear a helmet. Right. <laughs> yeah. Once in a while, out of the ten kids who go out in the neighborhood and play, they'll become nine. But hey, that's part of the Darwin's natural selection, exactly. right? Exactly. That's yeah, exactly how it plays out. Are we? You're talking late sixties, early seventies sort of range, or? Th- or even a little earlier. Well, we probably was uh, mo- we moved there in '69, I think, or '68, okay. so and then so we left just... in uh, uh, twelve, thirteen years later. So I was about, uh, was about thirteen, I think. Cool. Yeah, that was that perfect time in my life to really uproot and screw me up forever. Right, <laughs> just when you're beginning to get a sense of place. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, all, you know, all your friends you grew up with, all that stuff. Oh, they're gone. Say goodbye. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a. Uh, 
excellent lesson in Buddhist non-attachment, I guess. Yeah, so, so nobody explained that to me, though. Not I, quite in those terms. Huh? Well, what I, I realize now is my parents were going through so much and that there just wasn't much left over. Right. And they were doing probably what they thought was best and what their sure. parents did. And uh, noticing or thinking back at that time is I can't imagine, you know, after being an adult and moving around and move, going into a new position or a new uh, new work environment, how, how hard that is. And then, and then to have the kids on top of that. And not everybody gets their their needs uh, addressed do they yeah isn't that funny as when you're a kid you have this sense that your parents have it together where they probably know what they are doing <laughs> and stuff and then you realize when you become an adult that more likely than not there was like 80 percent image and 20 percent reality to that perception where you're like yeah, yeah on a good day right you know if if they are keeping up the image they're already doing a great job <laughs> if they are giving you that feeling right. not not keeping up the image in a fake kind of way but if they are letting you feel that there's a sense of logic to it all yeah it's already quite amazing they are doing miracles right there yeah i uh i'm, I'm very aware of that now having having another chance at having a baby in the house and and watching her grow up and you have know, you got her her helmet yet or no she doesn't have <laughs> it. but we had that conversation does she need a helmet to ride in a bicycle chair on my wife's bicycle i said i'm of the opinion no we don't need that um you know and but it their kids poor kids have to go to the playground they wear their bicycle helmets in the playground um, you know things like that it's just uh, it's, it was so much better because i was the same it, you know, nine, ten years old, we were on the bikes first thing in the morning and be back before it's dark was yeah. pretty much the rule for the whole summer. And the adventures yeah. unfurled at an incredible pace. Yeah. And sometimes somebody did break a leg and sometimes somebody did get stuck in a well that we shouldn't have been messing with. But because, yeah, you know, there's the perception today of how, oh, you know, the world is so much worse than it was. It's like, no, you just didn't hear about it. You yeah. know what I mean? That's it's the like, problem. The reporting so, is much better of all the bad news. Yeah. People relax a little more in a blissful, unconscious belief that things were easier <laughs> than they actually were. And now they stress more than they need to. But, you know, it's like, probably they were the same shit either way. It's just that the response to it is very different. Now, we haven't done a proper introduction. We probably should, <laughs> by all means. Maybe may, may wait if I want to add my name to this until it's over. Oh, we can do that too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. After we start bringing up international drug dealing yeah. and things, we should uh, now. Uh, well, one of the things that everybody should do in um, checking out this podcast, you have a, there's a mini documentary about you on, what is it, 10 minutes, something like that on YouTube? About 10 minutes. Yeah. It's on YouTube. It's on Vimeo. Uh, what's the title? From U.S. Marine to Zen Monk. Sound like it, it captures the, the journey right there. I watch it. It's a great documentary. Check it out. Um, I'll put a link in the episode notes, okay. assuming I remember. But yes, that's the goal. I'll put it up there so you guys don't need to even struggle with the gods of Google and can, <laughs> I'll find it for you. And, uh, but yeah, that's, I mean, the story itself, like even in the title itself, right there, it, it captures something right there, right? From, I think so, yeah. From U.S. Marine to Zen Monk. Well, please do tell. By the way, his name, the good man, his name is Scott. Well, um, let's hear it. How the hell did you end up doing that journey? Which I'm guessing... I'm going to go on a limb and suggest that maybe there aren't like 12,000 white guys who were Marines in the, uh, in the U.S. and end up being Zen monks in Japan. But <laughs> that's just my wild guess. 
I've I've seen stories of other uh, military members that found uh, a similar path, and and they're probably a little bit more ambitious than me. They're actually living in the U.S. and they're helping uh, uh, veterans with PTSD and things Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, For me, I stumbled into this. The whole synchronicity, I think, is what still amazes me. Is I I was doing meditation for a long time. I you know it's probably thirty years ago now. Be It'll be, yeah, it'll be 30 years in uh, next year in March where my second son died, or my second child, my son died. Mm-hmm. And my my wife and I, we split up after that. And I, so she took my daughter and they moved back uh, from Arizona to Detroit. And that was the the part in my life where I got to, f- I, I needed to find some, some sense out of this. And, you know, I, I searched uh, very vigorously uh, thoroughly at the bottom of many vodka bottles, and I did not find an answer. And uh, I started meditating, and that's where things came together. And I started reading stuff, and I spent a lot of time by myself as a, a, a time to you know kind of crawl inward and, and figure out what was going on. Uh, but I, I also remember when I was eight or nine years old reading a book about yoga mm-hmm. and reading a book about meditation. So it seems like there's something in my my background that's always been trying to come out. And, uh, so I meditated off and on for a very long time. And then I just started getting a little bit more focused and it, um, when was, you were meditating off and on, was it any particular tradition or was it kind of like sit there trying was, to she, let the thoughts go by? Type well, of sit thing. there and try and make my thoughts stop. Right. Was the, you know, and five minutes was like a dog year. Oh yeah, of course. And, and that, course. that was the, my initial experience, but, uh, we didn't have the access to information like we do now and, and teachers and all these things. Kind of fast forward to 2000, probably about 2000, 2002, I started getting a little bit more serious. And I stumbled into this program called Holosync. Mm-hmm. And Holosync puts two different frequencies into each ear, one in each ear. And your brain lateralizes between those two. And it brings you from the beta state we're in now down into alpha Pass and then through theta and then into delta, and it holds you in delta. So if you do an hour with Holosync, you're getting 50 minutes of, of delta, 45 minutes of delta. So it's kind of a meditation on steroids uh, in terms of brain function. Right. Uh, you don't get, eight, you know, they say it's eight hours of meditation. Regular meditation is an hour on Holosync, but what they don't get is you don't get the distraction from the leg pain the back pain, the fly on your freaking nose, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the conversation somebody's having in the kitchen at the temple, right. you, know, you, you don't get all that stuff. Uh, so, uh, it has its value, but it also, I don't, uh, it doesn't have its, the challenges. Value. Yeah. yeah it doesn't right. have its, the challenge. Um, so I forgot where I was going with this and this won't be the first Are time. Are we going anywhere? It's no. Okay. <laughs> the, that's because we don't exist. Yeah. The, that's interesting, by the way. So you started doing these just in U.S. while you were still in the Marines and yes. everything? Yeah, yes. Just and I did, a, I did a lot of cycling back then, and cycling was my, my uh, pressure relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, so I, I cycled a lot, sometimes as much as uh, three, 400 miles a week uh, when I was I, I wanted to be a bicycle racer. Right. And I, I competed, but... None of the people I competed against thought I was competitive. <laughs> Somebody's got to come in last, right? <laughs> uh, so that was my on and off. I did that for many years. I read a lot back then. And then, like I said, uh, probably late 90s, I got a little bit more, uh, what do you call it, methodical mm-hmm. and uh, a little bit more consistent. And then 
the last 15 years, it's been very consistent. So. How long were you in the Marines for? 20 years. So serious mm -hmm. time in there. When did you, you get out? 2000, uh, February of 2004, I retired. So did you ever have to go to Afghanistan or Iraq? I had the best career you could imagine. Every what did you do for Gulf War I? Uh, I, was, I was in training. I, I was a flight engineer on a C-130, and I went into training in 1990. And when I uh, finished was 1991. So my, my contribution to the war effort is we flew over to Saudi Arabia, and we picked up uh, three Jeep Cherokees. And we brought them back. <laughs> <laughs> and on the way, we stopped in lodges in Portugal, and we dropped off some kitty litter to people on base there that couldn't get it through their normal channels. So, so no PTSD from that. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the kitty litter were rough, the right? Kid, but, kid, no. but every time something happened, I was in some place that just didn't didn't get called. And my best friend during the military, he every time something happened, he was on the first plane there. <laughs> <laughs> and I just had that golden uh, military career where I, I missed everything. Wow. That's the opposite of our friend Doc Booma, who literally signed up in 1999, or maybe it was even 2000, yeah. and was a ranger just in time for 9-11. So they were like... Off to Afghanistan, wow. off to Iraq. Just the worst to, possible yeah. timing to sign up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's the opposite. Like what you were saying, somebody got got to end up last in a bicycle race. Yeah, there's yeah. also the there are those who never get called. There are those who get called every single time, and then yeah. there's everything in between. I agree, and I it, I didn't I didn't write my own orders. Right, you know, a lot of people gave me the had the idea that I, I had somehow a magic pen. I can write my <laughs> no, own orders. Not quite. And, and uh, I didn't do that. You know, I just happened Some to be where I was. Some strange karma. Yeah. I'll, uh, what prompted you to get into it to begin with? Like, because that's clearly, you know, that's a career choice. It's not like, oh, I'm gonna try for a while while I'm 19, and then it's you went in for 20 years. That's clearly a huge part of your life. What mm. was the initial motivation for you? Well, the, initially it was probably a four-year commitment mm -hmm. and I was I had gone through a semester of college after high school and that was just about as successful as my high school you know I, I think I graduated a, a 1.2 GPA or something right and uh, I failed all I think I had five classes my last semester in high school and I failed all of them except for the one I needed the credit to graduate Marks. and uh And so I was, I was just living a life of going nowhere in Michigan, living with some people. And uh, my best friend at the time joined the Navy, and I, uh, I ended up joining the Marine Corps for a four-year gig. And things just kind of steamrolled from there. Right. Yeah. So you figure, let's try, let's see what's going on. What kept you going? Well, it's, at a certain point, it was, it was after my divorce, for instance, it was... It was Typical male thing, I think, let's get out of this. Let's do, let's change something for the sake of change, you know, mm -hmm. because this isn't, you know, my life isn't working, so I need to change it. And uh, I always wanted to be a uh, travel. Mm -hmm. And the flight engineer gig in the Marine Corps is the best thing you can do, in my opinion, for an enlisted guy, because you're the third crew member in the, in the flight station. You fix your own airplane. There's a tremendous responsibility, and you get to travel. And I had applied for that transfer and I re-enlisted to do that and the day I re-enlisted was that night my son died Jesus Christ and the I couldn't go to school obviously so that just got thrown to the to the wayside then a year later uh, my marriage blows up and, and they're trying and in the, in the meantime I'd gone through one of the 
the aircrew training school, so I was at least aircrew trained so I could do that. And then my marriage blows up. And so I remember this, this, and I can say it, this fat fucking sergeant major with a cigarette in his hand screaming at me across the desk saying, if you don't take these orders to go to school right now, you're never going to get them. And I said, you know what? I'm in no condition right now to go to school. And it's the hard, it's one of the hardest schools in the Marine Corps. Yeah. We have an attrition rate is you know somewhere around seventy percent. I think. Right. They said. Wow. And I said I'm in no condition to do this. At least I acknowledge that you don't. Yeah. And uh, you can have your orders. And at that point, I thought I was on my way out. And so uh, we're in living in Arizona. And this friend of mine, he uh, he says I'm going out to the river to to go camping for a night or two. Why don't you come with me and we'll do some water skiing on the on the Colorado River and. Uh, Another guy came out. We're sitting around by the fire drinking beer one night, and he says, "I'm telling my my sob story." You know, <laughs> he says, "Well, I'm in charge of, of training for the next higher level command." He says, "I can get you a school seat." I'm like, no way. So we're drunk, and I kind of forget about it. Shit, I get a message, you know, that hey, I'm going to school, and all hell breaks loose. Wow. And the guy I've been working for at the time, though, I. I I thought I was doing a good job and he thought I was working hard for him and he went to bat for me and they fought it out. And he, they excused me from this guy's office. These two majors went, went to, went to yeah. blows almost over it. And, and, uh, I got my order. So off I went and that's, so it, wow. it was like one of those things that fate was testing me to, I really want to do this. Yeah. And, and once I did it, I really enjoyed it because you traveled three weeks out of the month. Uh, the per diem was fantastic. And, uh, the autonomy, for being an enlisted yeah. guy in the Marine Corps was just wonderful because you're, there's six of you operating an airplane all the way around the world. And, and that, so that was the part that appealed to me. And uh, it became fun at that point, so it was easy to stick around. And then the 10-year mark is where everybody starts to struggle, I think, right. is what I, the people I talk to. Because now it's like, oh, there's your, there's your um, uh, retirement to consider. And then, or I can get out now and I can make money doing something else. Right. And I started, I was down to 20 days and I was living in Japan. I was down to 20 days and I, I had not found a job yet. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And I realized I hadn't finished college yet. I didn't have what they call an airframe and power plants license. So I, you know, I was a mechanic, but I didn't have a license for yeah. commercial aircraft. And I had a, I had a flight engineer rating from, from the FAA so I could be a flight engineer, but those were dinosaur positions. Yeah, yeah. New aircraft don't have flight engineers yeah. anymore. And it was a real wake-up call that said, you know what, you're not qualified. Right. And so that, well, I re-enlisted for two years, so now I'm at the 12-year mark. And now it becomes a math equation. Okay? Yeah. How much money can I make in, in the next eight years that would offset what I'd be losing in retirement? Of course. And uh, I fell in love with this position that they had for one Marine in Singapore, independent assignment, had to be a flight engineer to work at a rework factory with a Singaporean company. And I set my sights on that, and I said, i got to have that. And I'll, I'll be damned, I got that job. And at that point, it was just uh, four years and no haircuts and, you know, wearing, wearing dockers and a button-down shirt. And so then I had to – I got done with that after four years, and I had to do about a year and a half, and uh, then I was retired. So it, it all steamrolled pretty quick once right. I, I got over the edge. But that last year and a half after four years of independence, I was, man – Talk about square peg and round hole. How <laughs> do? Was it tough to say goodbye to your airplane when you left it? Yeah, I was done. I was, you were done with that? Yeah, the, just the, the, 
I took all my flight gear, I put it in a box, and I took it back to the flight equipment shop. And a lot of guys wanted to keep their jacket and stuff. I'm like, no, you can have it all. I'm done. Right. And then I took all my uniforms, and I had them in a box in the back of my Jeep. And we, um, I went into where I was working, and they couldn't wait to get rid of me. I was just, I was just not, yeah. you know. I, I, it was a perfect relationship. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't want me, and I didn't want them. And so I told them, I said, listen, i got to go check out a couple more spots, and then I'll be back. And I saw the CO who I'd known for a long time. So we're just sitting on top of the desk in his, his office. And uh, he said, what are you going to do? And he signs my checkout paper and, you know, gives me a hug. All right, see you later. And uh, I went over and I got my car and I dropped off the box with all my uniforms and I'm at the um, secondhand store on the base. And I went over and I turned in my checkout sheet because I don't need anything else from the squadron. Now I got the CO signature right. and I was done. And I, I, I went and dropped that off and I went home and I never went back. Wow. And they were supposed to, they were like, you, do you want to have a, a formation? Do you want to have a parade? They, they end of, they give you an end of service medal. I didn't show up for that. I didn't, I just left. <laughs> just like, I'm out. Uh, right. And then I think two years later, they tracked me down. They mailed me my medal. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just, I, I was finished. What was the, after that, before Japan, Zen. What was the transition in between? Oh, this yeah. I I didn't want to deal with airplanes anymore, and I got I did uh, I went to grad school and I got a, um, a grad degree in finance, so I was going to be um, some sort of you know banker, mm-hmm. you know, something. I was going to be the CFO of something, you know. And uh, I ended up getting into commodity trading, and my neighbor was into trading commodities and. I got the bug. And then, so I was going to make a gazillion dollars trading commodities. And what I did is I, you know how you, well, the joke is, you know how you make a little bit of money in commodities? You start with a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that tends to help. Yeah. And I did that. And I went to work for a firm and I was selling commodities over the phone and managing client accounts. And I worked, uh, I got a, I got some gigs doing analysis and uh, some other things. And everything I touched, just uh, I never made any money. <laughs> so I'm running out of money again. I lost all, I lost everything again, you know, and, uh, this guy calls, a friend of mine calls me. He says, Hey, there's a gig in Tokyo. If you want it with this engine that we used to work on with the C-130. And it's like, man, I could really use a job. <laughs> right. So we did the interview over the phone and, uh, I told him, I told the guy to, to sell it. I said, listen, I'm on a month to month lease in my apartment, my condo here in San Diego. So if I stay up all night, I can be ready to go in the morning. Yeah. Uh, if you need somebody, just 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 wow. saying, you know. So they hired me, and they, you know, about six weeks later, we were on our way to Tokyo. Nice. And uh, this was when? That was uh, two thousand nine. Okay. In the meantime, though, so the in the previous years, while in the whole failing at commodities <laughs> and finishing the Marines, that's when you were kind of experimenting with meditation in a more yeah serious fashion. On yeah, the side. I was doing, yeah, I was doing a lot of reading and, and, uh, I think, well, I, I've actually been to a Tony Robbins thing, mm-hmm. you know, and I've, I've been to a T Harv Ecker event, you know, so I, I, I tried a lot of different, um, a lot of different ideas. And what's funny about the intellectual pursuit is that you read something and say, oh, this is it. And you follow it for a while and then it's, well, things didn't change that great. Maybe this wasn't it. Right. And, and, and so that's what I was going through. I was becoming a spiritual tourist, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went through that through 2009 is when I really I got serious because I got into Japan. 
and I met this woman. Well, her name's Tamayo Lawson, and she's a, a sannyasin from India. And she helped me through some really, really eye-opening times. And that's what kind of, I think that's what prepared me for when I met my, my current Zen master, Jinnansan. Had I not been through all the work through her and focusing and getting rid of and beating the ego into submission and things like that, that I was in the right place at the right time to hear what he was saying and, and appreciate what he was saying. Uh, so that um, that 2009 to 2012 was a pretty rough time. Right. So you made your way to Japan by now, or were you still... Where did you meet this lady, uh, the Sanyazin? I was living in, in Tokyo at the time. Okay. What were you doing at that moment? I was working for Rolls-Royce. I was a, a field rep for a particular engine. If one was to design the perfect path to become a Zen monk, I think you have hit all the places where normally you wouldn't look for one, right? It's like <laughs> yeah. U.S. military, uh, trading commodities, uh, working as a rep for Rolls-Royce. <laughs> Somehow none of them scream a Zen monk. Yeah, but, uh, that, that's, that's what's so funny about it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why it took me by surprise. Yeah, I guess. And so what was the... What took you closer instead to that path? Because <laughs> each step that takes us is like this gets us closer. No, this gets us still further yet. <laughs> it seemed it, it was like one of those people that you know, the, like the Mister Miyagi thing. He's uh -huh. teaching you know, wax on, wax off. What's his deal with? And eventually, it all becomes clear. Yeah. And I feel like that's the stepping stones I was on. And I, I ran into this book called The Gene Keys, and it's a fascinating book. It comes out of the school of human design, where based on where you were born at what time and uh, there's a certain electromagnetic frequency that's downloaded into your dna that makes you your unique being and it's similar to what human design came from and i found that there was a person that they had several people you could choose from that would give you uh, uh, you could do a consultation with sure. i forget what they call it and uh, tamayo's picture resonated with me and what she her little blurb about her so that's that's why i chose her and, and we talked and then so we we did skype for about a year i think uh as as her as my my consultant my teacher mm -hmm. and then we maintained a friendship ever since and <clears throat> that really woke me up to the fact that i was living a, a life that wasn't it was good on paper but it wasn't in my heart and uh you know, being the American male, have a good job, have good income. Have, mm -hmm. I had everything on paper checked off, but it was just every morning I leave the house, it was just this, this feeling that wasn't fulfilled. The company was great. The position was there. Everything was great. Yeah. And I was, and I think this is what was so hard for me is that intellectually I was trying to make sense out of this and I couldn't. And so working with her, we, we did a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stuff of diving into these, these old program, these old beliefs that, shaped my way of life and uh ego gets beat up a lot on that and i did a lot of sitting and sometimes i was getting three four five hours a, a day mm -hmm. and i uh, by just, sitting you mean meditating meditating yeah doing doing zazen at mm -hmm. the time i didn't know i didn't even know what zazen was i right i didn't even know what i didn't know anything about zen at the time and there was a little pub that i would go to once every couple of months to stop in and the owner said uh we'd talked, he was a Danish guy and his sister owned it. And he said, 
you know, there's another guy that comes in here that does Zazen at his apartment on Sundays, and then the monks come and they drink together for a little bit on Sunday nights. Maybe you should meet them. And a couple of months later, I'm at the pub, and this this particular guy is there, and we started talking. So he invited me to his apartment. That's how I met Jin and San. And then he, they, I went out to the temple, and I sat there for an afternoon. Then we had dinner, and we started drinking a bit of beer and talking. And I thought, ah, this is it. And and I all that intellectual pursuit that I was so wrapped up in just kind of dropped by the wayside right then and there. And I said, I just need to come back here and sit on a cushion with him. And I and he says, if you have a question, you ask me. And that's all we did is just uh, I, I would go out there a couple times a week and we'd sit for hours and then I would just ask him question after question and I would just get my ego thrown back in my face and. Uh, it, it was just, it was so enlightening not to have a book to study, not, not, not to have a, somebody's opinion, because he could always just wrap things up so concisely that it, it, you couldn't escape it. Do you think if the 20-year-old you had happened upon this person, it never would have happened, right? This was the right yeah. place and time. Yeah, exactly. What, you talk a lot about ego. Is there any room for ego at all, or is it just always a troublemaker? We've got to have some, I guess, to move things forward and have a... Uh, uh, yearnings and, 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 and goals, sure. but I don't, I don't consider, well, if we do the strictly Zen thing, if I, if you open my head, you won't find an, a, a conscious mind, a subconscious, unconscious mind, an ego, you won't find any of those things. So those are just concepts. But in, 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 in my experience, I wanted a better life, ego driven. I wanted more money. That's why I started meditating. Uh, I wanted happiness. I wanted to feel better. I, and then I wanted more money. I want all these things. So like even a Tony Robbins or a mm-hmm. T. those things are basically hitting on the people's uh, uh, feeling of lack mm-hmm. and uh, fear of not having enough. And that's how I think that's what the ego does for me is, is to get me interested in that. But as Tom Mayo's always said, said, the ego will help you look, but it can't help you find. Because at the, at the point where you find that oneness there is no ego and it really means the death of the ego let's expand on that um so when you say for example you would ask question ask a question and you get your ego thrown back in your face can you explain it a little bit for people for whom is like huh what does that mean what well the the idea that i can know something with my mind is what causes trouble Mm -hmm. so for instance in Japanese, we call it satori, where you have a moment of this awakening. And the first time I had something like that, I wanted, I had the experience, and then very quickly, almost simultaneously, the mind comes along and wants to label it. Like, <laughs> right. That was so cool. Let's do that again. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> and, and in Zen, we, we always say just discard that, to throw it away, and question everything. And because if I, if I said that was such a cool, I had satori, yes. What is that? That's ego mind identification with the concept. And then what happens? I come, I bring in judgment. I'm going, and I bring an agenda. I'm going to sit on my cushion today and I'm going to have me another Satori moment. Right. And, and what happens? I can't, (laughs) well, yeah, my mind is so busy. Was that it? Was that it? And and, and so you don't give it room to actually happen. Yeah. So the idea is that whatever you think happened on your cushion, just forget it. Yeah. And, and so that's, um, so what happens with conversation with Jin and San is I have, I, I have a point I want to argue with and whatever it is, and he, he deconstructs it and I say, okay, I see what it is for ego. And then I leave 
and I go back to my office the next day or whatever, and I have some free time, what does this thing start doing? My mind starts searching for another way to frame that question, another way to explain mm-hmm. it where I can get him. And it becomes a, you know, it's, it's like a game. But on the ego thing, I guess the tricky part is that the, that desire to, for that something to happen, for that even kind of higher quality of life to manifest into yours. And maybe not necessarily just at the most basic level of, oh, I want the bigger house, I want more money, which, you know, yeah, you can clearly see as ego in the, at the simplest level. Right. But, you know, the more refined ego of the, I want that experience, that moment of oneness, that I want my damn Satori, I, you know, y- that y- kind yeah. of thing. It's still ego, but of course on a different kind of way of being an ego. How do you, what's the balance there? Because clearly if you don't have any of that and it's all experience happens to you, but there really is nothing there that is um, discriminating, choosing one way or another, it's kind of all part of this flow thing. It's, uh, is that the goal? Is that desirable instead to have both at the same time to some degree, to have that sort of self-awareness and... Like, go, go, I want this, but at the same time also be able to have it flexible enough to let those moments happen and not be constantly stuck in your mind forcing stuff? Or... Right. Well, I've come to see things that come up in my mind as that's the mind's job. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell people my heart beats, pumps blood, my lungs process oxygen, and my mind thinks. And I don't I don't want to stop any of those processes. <laughs> and But how often, you know... I, we might be becoming more aware of our breath sure. in this in this day and age. You know that I'm breathing up here in my sh- mm-hmm. in top of my lungs instead of you know the whole the whole uh, holistic breathing. And yep. uh, but I I don't think I've ever judged a heartbeat right as a good one or a bad one. Maybe they're coming a little bit too close together. I, not, <laughs> I might notice that right. But, <laughs> uh, but we're very aware of our mind, and there's this idea that the mind what the mind is doing is real, and it's really useful when I want to make a list to go grocery shopping, but it's not so good when I want to make a life decision. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea of what I've learned is, is just allow your mind, my mind to do whatever minds do and be fascinated by it. Uh, watch it, you know, dive into it, allow it to do what it's doing. Cause as long as I resisted it, it's what, you know, creates yeah. more fits it. Yeah. Persistence. So the, the idea about, uh, finding something is no longer so important for me because I know I'll have these moments. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they are, but they're some kind of moment. That's the joke we use. It's some kind of something. And and they come and go, and I just forget them now. And uh, I think I pay less attention to my mind than I used to, but it still goes batshit crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, there are times where as soon as the... the my butt hits the cushion and I cross my legs. I don't stop thinking about sex until the bell rings. Right. You know, that's just, that's what a mind does. And, uh, I, I guess I just don't have the hang up with it anymore. Right. So it's what it is. <laughs> it's what, <laughs> speaking of which, what's the, and I know, you know, there are different takes within Zen and stuff, but in the Zen tradition that you are exposed to, What's the attitude toward uh, getting lost in, I don't even mean just sexual pleasure, but sensual in general, anything having to do with the senses, sex being one of them. But what's the approach to it all? Is it seen as uh, how much of it is 
part of life, desirable, run with it, uh, versus uh, you can get lost in and can be kind of a distraction, versus, you know, the three zillion possible attitudes that exist there in right. terms of spiritual practices and sexuality in specific or sensual pleasure in general. Um, what's the tradition you are coming from? What's their take on it? Well, from from my teacher, what the, the, the message is always very clear. Whatever you're doing, just be doing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he said, if I, if I have beer, I drink beer. If I have meat, I eat meat. Uh, the, the idea is that whatever's taking place is perfect. It's just the mind is judging it. And my mind judges things based on the conditioning and mm-hmm. the belief structure that I set up when I was five years old, mm-hmm. you know. And if we don't go back and reexamine that, then it creates a lot of problems. Sure. You know, this... I'm sure this is why grown men beat each other up at a football game because their team didn't whatever. You know, it's just it's just fascinating. But I I I see that as as, an, as following an old conditioning pattern, mm-hmm. uh, and and so we um, the idea is that everything is coming up is okay, and it's just the judgment of it that creates the trouble. So from this perspective, the ego is not really an issue. It's just it's just whatever's happening and. The joke at the temple is, oh, if you have a problem with your ego, why don't you bring it with you next time you come, and I can set you free. <laughs> you know, right. Yeah, I couldn't find it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but the, uh, I think it's that when it finally sank into my head, the simplicity coming from that was just, that was mind-bending. Mm-hmm. And that's and accepting that. So when you talk about, being ego driven, I want to accomplish this. I want this job. I want this car. Nothing wrong with desire, right? That's part of a human condition. Sure. What what creates suffering though is attachment, right? And so, releasing attachment, you know, that's the third noble truth, is the end of suffering. Yeah. And and so the way that's played out in my life was I did have all these things. You know, I used to be that guy that had a list of things that I was going to accomplish. Yeah. And, and I created a tremendous amount of attachment and a tremendous amount of suffering from that. And early on, what happened was I wasn't getting, well, there, there are always three things that are happening. Let me put it this way. I am getting what I want. Great, glorious. I'm not getting what I want or I'm getting what I don't want. Mm-hmm. The latter two seem to be the prevalent uh, circumstance. What happened was it couldn't be my fault I didn't get what I wanted. I had to blame somebody. Sure. Yeah, and it made me angry, and I blamed people. And I came to realize, okay, if I'm blaming everybody, somebody's controlling my life, I'm just a puppet, mm-hmm. which is kind of silly. And so I thought, well, it's my fault I did it. Well, now turning the finger back in me is still blame, and it still creates trouble. And uh, then from there I, I learned that good and bad is is, is something that's arbitrary. Uh, Whatever's happening is okay in my life. Everything's perfect. What I call good or bad, that's just dependent on my circumstances or my beliefs or whatever. And and accepting that and saying, okay, now what am I supposed to, what's the message in this? And just accepting things as they are was a big step towards me being able to assimilate into, into the Zen world because that's what they teach is everything as it is. Mm-hmm. And there's no right or wrong, just as it is. And I don't think, like going back to your earlier question, at 20 years old, I didn't understand that. I had to go through that process of, of, of fighting everything and blaming everybody to blaming myself to finally just accepting that 
I don't have any control over these things. In that sense, so if all is perfect, how do you differentiate between this path and that path? You know, when you have to make a choice and it's like, would I rather go this way or that way? If at the end result, in terms of Zen consciousness, it's all, it's all what it is. And, and how does that reflect with like people who want to chop babies up or something crazy like that? I mean, where does evil fit into those notions? Because bad things are going on. And if it's okay, if what's going on is what it's supposed to be, how do we? Yeah, this, this was bound to come up. And this is, this well, is really the hard part. And let, to put it in my perspective, the way I see it is for me to say that um, an abused child is good or bad, for me to say that um, starvation in Africa is good or bad, I have to know an awful lot about what those people's purpose on life is or purpose on earth is. I have to know that they're not living out their life's purpose because they're, they're suffering or maybe they're here to suffer. And in the Zen, strictly in Zen, what uh, Jinan-san says is uh, true compassion is allowing people to be who they are. And there is no, there is no right or wrong in that. So there is no, no such thing as good suffering or, or bad suffering. It's just what is. And I would say that is the most contentious point that we get into. Well, of course. And uh, I think it's with all traditions, there's always the question of yeah. evil. evil, the question of screwed up things that happen. And, you know, we all have this notion of uh, you're a nice person, good things happen, you're a bad person, you'll get punished. And, of course, it, that's not the way it works in life. So and it leaves us a bit puzzled. And also just on a practical level is what do you do? You know, in that case, if I'm feeling compassion for all and everyone do i rescue the person on the end of abuse and do i put a bullet in the other guy's head or should i feel you know what i mean is like there come a point where you make choices where there are it's either i choose this path or i choose that path uh, uh how do you get to make those kind of choices when you come from a standpoint of um, kind of accepting things for what they are and yeah. dealing with what is. Well, the, I always know when my ego is involved because when I use the word because, mm-hmm. how's that? I'm doing this because. Mm-hmm. That person's starving. I'm going to do this. So, and, and it's all about ego at that point. Action is pure. Almost simultaneously, thought comes in to justify action. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the, the, the limbic system of the brain, you know, the herd instinct, we take fight or flight, we do this or that. And then what, because it precedes the thinking portion, now the prefrontal gets in the way and says, okay, I did this because. And, and so the because is where the ego shows up. Mm-hmm. But if, if, I, if I see somebody on the street begging for money and I, I throw a piece of pizza at them, it's already finished, already complete. Now, what takes place afterwards is is thought and ego. And no, no, I get on the dwelling yeah. and yeah. Uh, building your own mythology afterwards. But like in a case where you have to choose between this person and that person, you know, because oh. you are dealing with maybe, you know, take rather than some guy who's struggling with hunger, where it's like pizza, here you go and off and you forget about it. What about the case where you have one person who seem to be doing stuff that from a typical standpoint you judge as fucked up and evil against this other person do you step in in defense of this other person as you see them as the victim do you see what the interaction that's taking place as part of uh, 
this is how things need to work out and that's I'm playing no role in it. I'll be kind of like uh, walk through it without taking an active role in the dynamics right. between these two people or you, know, you see where I'm going? I see. Yeah, I, I think, again, from my perspective, is that if I take action, I take action. Mm-hmm. If I don't take action, I don't. Both of those are pure. And if I find myself in a situation where I need to make a choice, I usually know now that I've already made my choice, but what I'm doing now is the mental masturbation of trying to convince myself <laughs> not to do it or to do it. Right. <laughs> and, and, and to the extent that goes on is just part of it. You know, that's just, that's just what the mind does. Right. And, but I, the action is always pure. So in the instant you see something and you react to it, that's fine. It's over and done with. And then, Again, what takes place after that is the justification. So is there such a thing as free will then in that context? Uh, that's a good question. Because if kind of like the action is happening almost, unless the ego kicks in, if you kick the ego to the side and the action just happens in a way, is there ever a choice there or is something that just kind of, for whatever reason that I cannot, quite understand but like the pieces got thrown in that direction and that just the way they are falling and the action is the result of this process that started long long ago on which there really is no conscious choice at that point well i think anytime we're talking about say say free will free will is a concept Mm -hmm. it it, it's based it's a definition Mm -hmm. and so in that respect it's not real Mm-hmm. The idea of free will is not, it's, that, that's a human concept, that's a mind, uh, human conception or a human uh, uh, condition. So again, everything is happening is perfect. And once that action's taken, that moment's gone and can never come back, you can't undo anything. Right. So, so anything that's taking place that's dealing with future or past is mind-based. Sure. And it brings up that idea we'd all be sitting around the table just kind of looking at each other instead of talking. So... It gets to a point where this isn't easy, mm-hmm. uh, but the uh, at the end of the day, uh, action is just action, and um, everything else is, is is talking about action or because, and that's what causes trouble. Mm-hmm. The the mind conversation about it all. Yeah. Gotcha. The um, on a completely different note, what is it like to be? a white American guy in Japan first, a white American guy being a Zen monk, uh, (laughs) you know, it's like, what's the Japanese society at large and in general, your experience with it? What's the response to it all? Right. Japan gets a lot of good rap for a lot of things. You know, there are a lot of, clearly somebody has done good PR because there's a lot about Japan that, you know, crime rate, people at basic level of being polite, you know, those things. Racism is not one of the things for which Japan is known to be completely devoid of. So I'm curious what the take is on uh, somebody who is not Japanese and does not, you know, what's the response? Yeah. Well, the... Takahatsu is what I talk about in the video where I'm standing in front of a station with my, my big hat and my bowl and I'm chanting. And that's where that interaction seems to play out mm-hmm. the most. And, and I think in some ways the, the Japanese I deal with are, are really kind of proud of being Japanese because I came to learn their culture. Mm, okay. And, 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 so it's kind and, of welcoming. And they really appreciate me for that effort. That's cool. And then I get, I've been berated by people that uh, 
uh, you know, you don't, you don't deserve to be here, you know, and it's just, it's all different, uh, reactions. Yeah. From the whole spectrum. And I've had people come and ask if they can take money out of my bowl. And, uh, you know, I was like, here, it's not mine to give, right. you. you know, it's not mine to say yes or no. And, and then, uh, people come and they want to share their problems with you. And a lot of times I can't understand them at a certain point. My Japanese doesn't yeah. keep up, but, uh, uh, I think the overall feeling is be, is very welcoming to be in Japan, mm-hmm. and I think people appreciate the effort, and, and and that's usually what I predominantly that's what I hear from right. Them. But there are occasions where people just don't seem to get it, and but the other thing is I was shocked at my conditioning and how how self uh, self conscious I was when I the first time I did that. Sure, I thought you know I was going to hear car screeching and crashing because everybody had to look at me. Right. I was so self-conscious. And one of the things that came up was so fascinating was when I was a kid, I was smaller and I got picked on. And this is, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. I got beat up or whatever. Uh, I still carry that energetically in my system. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm standing out there doing my thing, the kids in Japan are playful. They're not, they're not, you know, you know, they're just curious. But I went into this condition, closed down feeling of tenseness like I was getting picked on. Right. And it brought me back like that was like five, six years old again. Reaction. Yeah. It was just, it, I was just stunned with it. And I didn't get it the first time it happened. But after, you know, they're like, they're playing behind you, making pictures and the other ones are taking photos. Yeah, and I'm standing motionless, you know, but I know what's going on. Yeah. And I was so upset with that the first couple of times. And I realized, oh, duh. This is just an old, old memory. What is it that still lives inside people? Like this idea that something that happened a million years ago to somebody was not even you anymore because, you know, you were, your body was different, your experiences were different, sure. everything about you was different. The thing that happened to that one person there carries with you maybe decades later and yeah. it still affects your life which i mean is of course is the basis for ptsd right which is like something that affects you dramatically when that original experience is long gone and is yeah. no longer a threat in your surroundings on a less dramatic fashion but again less dramatic to, in one way but also not in the sense that it stays with you so long something like what you just brought up mm-hmm. What what is this scene that live in us that we carry from the past? <laughs> that's so. Well, the way I understand it is is that that becomes part of my conditioning, mm-hmm. and so I've been reinforcing that for the next you know forty five years, sure. and until I go back and reexamine that. Well, yeah. it's just funny. I mean, some of those uh, really dramatic at the time events when you're five six years old, it really is the basis from where everything. You know, those are the roots of the tree at that point. Yeah. So I think that is in there with you for good. Yeah, because it's funny. You know, when you think about people who they are 70 year old and they are still blaming their parents for something that happened when they were five. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that's a very good example. What the fuck, man? That was 65. Like, really? We're still there. But and in one way is, yes, what the fuck? Why are you still there? On the other end is, well, <laughs> that's what it is, right? That's the reality is a lot of people, a lot of the time do it. And it's not because they enjoy it. It's like, yeah, I want to carry this shit for the next 65 years. But it's a great me- security blanket. It gives me something but, to blame. Obviously, it wasn't my fault. My parents fucked me up. Well, and, and There's that. And in fact, it gives you the justification for feeling that and way. It, and it's worked. 
for them for so many years. And that, I think that's what I, my brain skipped a record. My record skipped was there's a, a theory called neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. And, and so these neural pathways in my brain have been behaving like I'm, I'm threatened. I'm a five-year-old. I can't defend myself and you know, whatever. And it, they've been doing that for so long that it's like a super highway. Right. And so that's the neural pathway that that thought's going in. And now what I'm starting to see is that I can see when the, the dominoes start to fall, like a certain reaction, a certain thing triggers a thought. Yeah. And then I, I can get ahead of it and see that the next thoughts that are going to follow that. Right. And so the meditation research now is that there's this neuroplasticity says that we can rewire those neural pathways and we mm-hmm. can change them. And I guess having enough time on a cushion is one of the things that helps you uh, uh, break those down and give you the awareness that, that something like that's happening. What's the, um, for people who are curious, who want to kind of like, I want to get a feel for what's out there, kind of like the way you were at one point where you're like, I'm going to play a little with meditation, see what happens. What do you think are the the best ways to go about it? I mean, is it kind of like classic Zazen on a cushion, sitting down? Is it uh, more, I forgot what was the technological well, thing. The Holocene. Yeah, the Holocene approach. Is it uh, just spend time in nature, not talk to anybody, just walk around? Is it, what do you think are some of the, your favorite, if nothing else, or oh, okay. what you would throw out there for people who are curious about getting their feet in the water there right holosync appealed to me because there was i think at the time i was still in the te- that, that intellectual technical thing where there's a way to to, to, to speed up the process <laughs> anything right. that gets me through this yeah better enlightenment through yeah, science yeah. exactly but i you know i come to realize that when i was uh, really miserable you know 30 years ago 25 years ago I, cycling was a big thing for me mm-hmm. and that was a way to you know to to make the mind get the mind to shut up mm-hmm. you don't pay attention to it you know right. like anything you, you know the physical exertion eventually gets oh, yeah. you know gets the mind to be quiet uh i tried so many different things and i think that's what people have to do is is be willing to try something sure. and know that it's probably not it's not the way yeah because whatever you i've identified with as the way it's not it i can mm-hmm. guarantee you that eventually i'm going to set that philosophy aside right and i'm going to get the next one and and so it's a process that of, of just allowing yourself to do it and whatever feels right, that's what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I recently did a presentation in Tokyo a couple of months ago about uh, mindfulness. And mindfulness is the rage now. And I said, if somebody approaches your company and says, you know, it's going to cost you X amount of dollars to teach mindfulness, just call it, you know, politely show them the door. This is something we all possess. And what's going to happen is you're going to practice it breathing for five to eight minutes a day, five times a day, and your ego is going to come up with reasons why it's bullshit. That's when you need to talk to somebody. Right. And the person that's teaching mindfulness, probably I've spent more time in the crapper at a temple in between Zazen sessions than they've spent on a cushion, Mm -hmm. you know? And one of them I checked online was I had to do an entire day of meditation you know, do their online courses and then do a day of intensive meditation. And I'm a mindfulness teacher. And I think that's, that's not the path. Right. (laughs) Where there's a bit of an issue there, right? Or if you chose that path and you're in the middle of doing that, just understand that it has its limitations. Right. And and that it, 
as long as your mind is, is, is thinks that this is the right way, then you know, it's not, mm-hmm. you know, that's interesting. Cause to me, it's like when you were mentioning about physical exertion being one of the way in which you quiet the mind, yeah. I have a easy time with that. That's why I find for me, martial art practice, one of the healthiest thing for my mental well-being is when those two or three times a week when suddenly all this bullshit that keeps growing, 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 like suddenly goes, ooh, and all the pressure, like yeah, yeah. You, you shut off the heat under all that pressure building up and you walk out and you just look around and you're like, ah, this is life, <laughs> you know, this is the... But whereas I can do it through that, through physical exertion, I find that any attempts at more formal meditation leads to me wanting to kill everyone inside because it's just (laughs) i'm just like and i understand you know it's my limitation it's my but there's that moment where i'm like okay i can do two minutes i can do and two minutes i even like it you know where i have just at the moment of pause button where i go okay stop whatever the hell you're doing sit down breathe two minutes perfect right happy micro meditation anything beyond (laughs) that my brain starts just punching things left and right, yeah. inside, outside, and just is it just kind of like that's your crazy monkey mind that you need to train? Is it just uh, no, just go do jujitsu and sweat like a savage and do that instead? Right. Is it what's the? I just think allowing your mind to do that is what's important. Mm-hmm. To give you an example, we do we do week long things called session, and you sit for ten, sometimes twelve hours a day, off and on, multiple oh. sessions, and everything hurts after a couple of days. Of course. And I was sitting, and I was in pain, and I was watching my mind, and it was getting just like you're talking about. Right. If I could burn that place down, <laughs> I probably would have right then. And I was just watching it build to this crescendo, and at the end, at the top, the big gong was i turned my anger towards my teacher that's what the ang- that's what eventually led to when i just kept following it and now i was like you can't and I'm, this is my mind screaming you can't make me do this anymore and i'm angry at my teacher right and i thought and that was the point that was the threshold when i i, I let it go to that point i was like ah oh. and, and then it was all gone poof it was just disappeared but i had to see where it you know, I had to blame somebody. Sure. And and uh, the the guy that's only been you know so kind and loving to me and helped me uh, became the object of my anger. And I thought that was bizarre. Mm-hmm. And then it was gone, and it never came back. And all of a sudden, all the pain, discomfort in my body was gone, and I was just kind of back to on my cushion. Hmm. And so, I, every. Uh, sensation or every impulse I had physically to, to yeah. lash out to do something was not being met. Mm-hmm. And that's what was manifesting in my brain. That's the way I would explain it. So that's what you're dealing with. If, if you've always had an escape pattern where I can, I can choke the shit out of somebody and that makes me feel better. When you take that away from you, yeah. now you're only left with it, with that space in between your ears. And, uh, it's very uncomfortable. It is. It sucks. <laughs> and, and that's something that, um, I think, we all have to deal with one way or another. And I don't necessarily preach that you have to sit on a cushion to do it, but sure. at some point you're going to be someplace where you can pick up your phone 
or you can pick up a book or you can turn on TV or whatever your particular escape pattern is. And then there's the point where you don't do that Mm -hmm. and just stand there and just let the the energy, the current run through your body and experience it. Mm -hmm. And as you build that tolerance, what would normally be a state of reaction, somebody does something and I react right away, becomes a state of, oh, let me think about this. Do I want to respond? Maybe Mm -hmm. not respond at all. But there's a gap there. I'm no longer in that immediate uh, uh, stimulus reaction thing. Now I'm like, ah, something happened. That big fat person just stepped on my foot and it really hurts. And I'm sure they didn't mean it. But that's interesting because on one end we're talking about action just happens and there's something pure about it. And on the other end we're looking at extending that gap so you're not constantly reactive but you actually have a choice yeah. as a, and it's interesting because they both sound very cool but they seem to be going at least from a purely rational standpoint they seem to be going in different directions yeah and i, I think if i was better at this i would be able to explain it <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's a good question for my teacher uh, please but i, I think up. we're still ultimately we're still identifying with the person mm-hmm. as this is something happening but ultimately who you are is who you're who you were before your mother met your father yeah and What's taking place to, to me is, is this is Scott's, the long-running TV show called Scott's Life. And this is what, you know, is, mm-hmm. is, is happening. It's not happening to, to me, per se. It's happening to Scott, the character. What's the, um, for you specifically, the Zen tradition you are involved in more in general, what's the take on uh, the nature of the soul, reincarnation, the reality of it versus, you know? Oh, okay. Uh, I think in the strict sense, uh, there is no such thing as reincarnation because there's no there's no physical existence. Right, because <laughs> right, there's not even this life, yeah, right? There, in, there, in yeah, the, this, this yeah. is all concept that's right. ru- rushing around my eyes right now. And, right. Uh, so there, there's really no physical body. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's just that one. So in the matrix, is the reincarnation or not? Yeah. In this matrix we're living in. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the philosophy, the terms of reincarnation. Mm-hmm. There's one book I read that uh, done a really done a really good job of, of outlining the ten phases of reincarnation, and uh, I thought it was wonderful. It was based on on empirical research of uh, a therapist, and knowing it's just a philosophy, but also I like to borrow from that because nobody wants to talk strict Zen, mm-hmm. you know, so let's, let's use some of these sure. tools around us to, 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 to bridge that gap, to make, you know, to make the uh, connections and that's using inc- reincarnation is something is useful in understanding that that's why people are going through what they're going through. And I can't try and I shouldn't, I shouldn't arbitrarily try and change, mm-hmm. you know, the outcome of somebody's life. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's a useful tool. I, I don't, I can't say I believe in it sure. because what's there to believe in? <laughs> but I think it's fun. It's something I often fall back on when I talk to people. Is that, right. Yeah, a, um, but I guess when you say, you know, things like uh, what you wear before your parents met kind of thing, you know, implying that there's some kind of eternal reality. Yeah. Yeah. It's strictly in, in Zen, I, you know, if I, if I turn to you, I, I become you. And when I... When I turn, I face the wall over here. You, f- you go away, and I become the wall over there. And when you sit on the cushion, you hear the bells. It's not why are the bells ringing. It's just become the bell. And you're always moving from state to state. And, and 
And that, in this way, there's no separation. And if you think about it, everything exists be, has to coexist. Uh, if I die, or my is my my wife and my daughter well taken care of? They don't exist without me being here, right? The tree doesn't exist without something else beside it. A dot in space doesn't exist unless there's something else to give it reference. So I guess associated with that, one of the questions that come to mind for me would be like, how much the there's always that paradox where there's a very fine tipping balance that I can never quite see that's between on one end attachment as a negative entity which is what then creates all kind of suffering and that's that's not even just a buddhist teaching that's anybody who looks at life recognizes mm-hmm. that that's just how it is right um versus you know how how much attachment you can get rid of and still have a degree of love and how much can you love without really being attached to something oh i see yeah, that's, a, that's a really good question. And I think love in the sense that the way we use the word in mm-hmm. English language is, a, is an ego concept. Mm-hmm. I love you because. And, and, you know, somebody fulfills me or somebody. Sure. And I think what's happening is we're, we, we don't realize that we're incomplete. We don't, we're not cognizant of the fact that there's something missing. Mm-hmm. And falling in love with somebody is a lot of times you're falling in love with that piece of them that is giving you sure. that completeness and eventually you wake up and they don't love you so much anymore and you pretty much you pretty quickly stop loving them mm-hmm. uh, the um, so that that satori moment i think is synonymous with love mm-hmm. and on that level then there is nothing there's no love going to and from it's just a it's right. a, it's a state yeah. and 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 i I think that defies language and explanation, mm-hmm. kind of like explaining what the color yellow is. No, and I get that as the experience in that moment where they're just this pure state that is what it is and there's no... But then how do you end up uh, having kids or being in a long-term relationship or, you know, that... Because that's a different kind of story. It's right. not just that one moment with no concept, with no words. It is what it is. That's a whole other... Yeah, when you're in the middle of life, right? Yeah, I, I a, a story comes to mind about that because this is not something I'm completely, you know, I'm struggling just like anybody else. Of course, because, of because course, there is this physical thing. So I was at the temple one night, and Jinnasan said, "How are you? How are you dealing without any money anymore?" And you know, after a couple of years of not working, and it just doesn't bother me like it it used to, or like I thought it would. It's yeah. it's it's there, but it's not really there, and. He says, oh, that's very good, you know, grasshopper. <laughs> but uh, what the, I said, uh, he said something about family. I said, no, I, I just, you know, I just love being around my wife and my daughter and watching right. all this. He says, oh, and somehow they're more important than what's, or they're more real than what's in your wallet. And I thought, you son of a. <laughs> and it was cold. It was winter times. So I just kind of pulled the blanket over my head. And I said, I don't like you very much. <laughs> and. That, you know, to me is an example of, yeah, I can rationalize away money and, and other things, but take my daughter away from me, what would right. that be like? And and uh, that doesn't, you know, I just can't imagine doing that again. Mm-hmm. And and so the idea, yeah, there are some things that I just can't wrap my, my, my little space between my ears around. Right. And, uh, 
I guess that'll remain unanswered for me. <laughs> hey, no, that's part of the gig, right? Yeah. I mean, that's part of what I like about being real about this stuff yeah. is that not everything need to have a perfect, uh, <laughs> that's what kind of I distrust is when people have a ready-made answer to some things that I'm like, yeah, good fucking luck answering that. Cause that's not an easy. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah, you're coming at this from an intellectual thing and, mm -hmm. and it's, that's not, mm -hmm. you know, I had the, the luxury of having to go to the hospital back in July and I had some fluid in my lungs for one reason. I have no idea how this happened. And uh, I'm waiting in the emergency room for the, the scan to come back and my mom died of lung cancer mm -hmm. and I'm laying there I'm thinking I wonder if I got more in common with mom than I thought you know and uh I thought but it's been a good run I'd kind of like I'm looking forward to this being done and starting over mm -hmm. and I, I had you know I just let my thoughts go and there were quite a range of them but eventually I got this point it's like yeah I could be done now it'd be all right I mean it's been fun but it is a struggle being a human and that's kind of where I ended up with it. And I just kind of got peaceful and I forgot about it. Um, but, you know, it, there was it, that, that, that fear of the unknown mm -hmm. and what am I leaving behind? And um, that, drives, that drives me sometimes. It does show up. It doesn't go away. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Anything else you want to jump in or something particular? We've covered so much good stuff. I, uh, well, you tell me. I mean, um, um, I was funny, from your book, mm -hmm. you talked about fear. We're recording? Yep, yep. Okay, cool. Okay. You talked about fear and facing fear mm -hmm. as, a, as a cage fighter. Sure. And the Zen connotation on that would be fear is not something to be overcome. Fear is something uh, to be experienced. Mm -hmm. And I, I was wondering if you had a, a, a thought on that because um, the idea of getting over fear is, is an ego challenge. Totally, but the reality is... I live in a world in which I don't like, let's put it that way. In my experience, I don't like the excesses of ego because I see how that leads to a lot of suffering and crap and everything else. But I don't really know what it's like not to live in an ego world at all. Right. So my thing is not so much elimination of ego-driven stuff. It's more like a garden. You know, I don't want to wipe it out and plant salt on it. I just want to trim the weeds, <laughs> you know? It's like, I want to yeah. make a beautiful, healthy garden. <laughs> I don't want to just have the whole thing gone. Right. And so that's kind of more my experience with it, where there is a, there's a measure to which something leads to be feeling healthy and happy, and there's a measure to which makes me not feel healthy and happy. And I like the healthy and happy yeah. one, and I don't like the other one in both directions. Right. So that's kind of my thing on that is... Uh, it goes back to a very primal me happy now <laughs> versus uh, no this sucks don't like it yeah. you know it's so that's my feel on it yeah well it's you know that the transitory nature of everything is kind of what mm -hmm. blows my mind I, I started to pay attention to that as you know i get very focused on something happening and, and uh it's like this is nothing. You know, it's just, it's just how this monkey mind really gets, mm -hmm. really gets attached to, to something and wants an outcome or whatever. And, and yeah, I, um, I, I guess as a spectator, more of a spectator now than I used to be, it, it, it is fascinating to see how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, but in like in the experience of fighting your, your fears in the cage, did you ever feel like you, 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 Overcame? You conquered something no. or I mean I it, felt that I I could take edges off yeah. that made my life more unpleasant. 
So by removing some edges, the rest of my life could become more pleasant. Right. It's not a one-time conquer all. It's not a zero to a hundred kind of thing. It's uh, inches. Yeah. Inches here and there that give me more breathing room versus less breathing room. You know, that's the kind of, that would be my experience. Right. Um, I know people who seem to be, and I mean, being fearless in some context may not necessarily be much of a challenge to somebody because certain things don't scare them. But I've seen people who seem to be pretty damn fearless in general in a just attitude about life. Right. And I don't really know what it's like to live like that. I can, I admire it. It mm -hmm. looks beautiful. Um, there are too many steps between me and that to be able to understand yeah. how to get there or what does it even mean, you know, in... Again, it sounds like conceptually, if somebody told me, press this button and get to experience it, so I'd say, let's do it now. Mm. But I don't know how to get there, and I don't, it's so, it's just really foreign. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't see how we can escape ego in that. I mean, because it's, it's, it's part of the human adventure, mm -hmm. and, and things do pop up that push your button or push my button. And uh, to be completely devoid of that, or void of that, would be, yeah. be a strange feeling. And yeah. Even with my teacher, we've talked about that. If, um, he says, I asked him about something about uh, creating the Zendo that he, mm -hmm. he built. And I, he said, oh, you find that, uh, you know, you want something, but you have to let go of that, yeah. you know, the, the, uh, the attachment to it. But you can also, he says, you can find that you can bend things to your way, right. to bring them your way. Yeah. And that's one of the things he taught about when I, I took up the challenge of just living off of my donations was... Uh, he said, people will provide for you if you allow them. And ultimately, it's just me giving money to me. There's no, you know. So right. it, it, was a whole, it was a whole experience that I really had to push that button and, and, and follow it for a couple of years to see what happened. Uh, it's, I don't think it's something you get, you know, uh, on a weekend retreat. No, no, yeah. definitely. I mean, it's, it's lifelong and yeah. it's, yeah, it's a tricky journey to say the <laughs> least. Definitely. Well, my good man. Thank you very, very much. Kokuro-sama. Oh. Deeply appreciate <laughs> it. And I'll put a link to the documentary too because that's really fun to check out for everybody. Yeah, I love, the, I love the comments we get from that. Uh, some people are really upset with me. Really? I'm, not a, I'm not a real monk. I'm not, just, just really... Oh, because you're married and have a yeah, kid? Yeah, yeah. I see. But, it, you know, it's funny. It's, 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 you know, in their opinion, I'm not this. In their opinion, right, I'm not right. that. And so there's a whole country full of people like me that are you know, Zen monks in Japan is you know, break the news to them gently. Cause they've been, <laughs> they, they've, they've been living their life thing in a lie. Cause right. you, you don't think so, you know, but uh, most by far the majority of comments are really, really nice. And, uh, uh, I don't respond to that many of them. Uh, but to some people have, you know, the, the same story, similar story, been in the military, or whatever, being about the same age and, and, and finding that you're just not happy. Right. With, uh, you know, what life, it's not fulfilling. And so I hope that helps. Makes sense. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Funky music means one thing, and that's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. I uh, I don't know if I got all of that. 
I tried to. I even wrote some stuff down, and it just sort of, ah, you know, he was interesting, and he was nice, but I don't think. I think. if I take action, I take action. If I don't, I don't. Either is pure. Uh, you know how the gig is with Zen teachings. It's not exactly the thing that dissecting rationally always works. It's probably the wrong tool for the job. But um, but here we are playing, talking on in front of microphones, so we can do a whole lot else. No, and it's not, I'm not trying to act like a waste of time or anything. I think it was very interesting. No, I, I love his story. Sure. And the little and he's documentary an awesome individual. is great. But yep. I was found myself confused at moments. Well, nothing new there. <laughs> <laughs> Story of our lives. Absolutely. Right? Let's play with. Let's give a few thank yous first and foremost. Um, among the thank yous, I would say there are. Well, the usual. There's Daisy House for the music. Always appreciated. With There's, a fresh um, new cut. So get to, it's a they've done a cover of a song called Languages, and it's probably one of their coolest ones yet. So be sure to go to Bandcamp slash daisy house and you can pick up their record a few other thank yous i want to mention there's uh i mentioned him a few um episodes ago we had jonathan waterloo who's one of our regular donors so we love you for that already and he had commissioned savannah to design a t-shirt that's pretty badass um featuring a quote by otto van bismarck it was actually a really cool quote about floating and going through life by adapting to the waves and so on so there's that, and um, and I forgot to put a link in the episode notes to his stuff. So if you want to check them out, he has a few t-shirts out there that are pretty damn cool. So I'll put the links in the episode notes. And again, it's sweet if you can support other people who are part of the Drunken Taoist community. Yep. So that would be deeply appreciated. Similarly, two more of these folks. I have a Facebook link for the nice people at Shaman's Simple Solutions who sent me a couple of their salves made with all natural ingredients, super good smelling stuff, among other things. I use them, I dig them, so nice there. And these guys are awesome. At www.cropodopolis.com, which I'm taking a while, guys, and saying that if you want to check them out, you'll read the episode notes because it's not the easiest to spell out. That's in quite the, a word. Yes. And they sent, uh, they sent me and Savannah this giant thing of soaps, and they are all handmade by them on, in their place in Oregon. Great ingredients. And among other things, I'm awaiting the pictures anxiously. They sent Savannah a red Sonia outfit with the chainmail bra. I'm waiting for that. I, I need a picture of that in my life with a sword drawn. And so that should be fun. <laughs> so thank you so much, guys. And again, for you guys, if you can check out some of the stuff that other drunken listeners are supporting and creating, that would be sweet. Having said all that, um, speaking of supporting, I know that parting with your hard-earned money is a pain in the ass sometimes. As always, please use us for your Amazon shopping. So the easiest thing so that it's not the pain in the ass that you have to remember every time is do it once. Copy the link, bookmark it, have it as your Amazon go-to thing. So every time you need to shop on Amazon, you click on that bookmark and you have it forever and ever. You don't have to remember it ever again. Perfect. That would be sweet. Uh, our t-shirts, always nice if you decide to check them out. Made with the awesome short design material, but with our funky logos and images and the art of Savannah M and my perverted brain created such things. 
What else? Uh, Taoist lecture series and my book, Not Afraid. If you want to check them out, you, know, you listen to podcasts. doesn't seem to be too much of a stretch to think that you may want to listen to some of these other things. A lecture, a whole seven hour plus on Taoism and uh, audio version of Not Afraid. All in your delicious accent. All in my delicious accent, if you can get enough. Um, I would say that is about it. That's it. So thank you, guys. Have a good day. Bye, everybody. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. No, you don't. <laughs> in questo caso, in questo caso, le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, yeah? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great, fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. We've been yeah, having a great hour here. Got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're outro. Oh, we're outro. Okay, sorry. So that's so. Let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, uh, your accent? It just whatever that movie is you were trying to tell can me you about. Translate for me, please. I believe the word was tombstone. Yeah, that one exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the road shall teach you. Get back to work.